London Calling. London Walks Connecting. London Walks here with your daily London fix. Story time, history time. What'd you do this morning? Well, I read the papers. Ah, so the age of Gutenberg isn't over. Well, before you jump to conclusions, maybe you better ask what papers I read. All right. What did you read? Glad you ask. The Times for today, June 25th, 1817. Why'd you do that? Were there any big stories? I did it because I felt like it. And no, as far as I could see, there weren't any big stories. But big stories aren't the whole story. I just had a hankering to see what life was like in London 205 years ago today. Okay, what was it like? Pull up a chair. Get comfortable. First of all, the paper itself, the Times. It was just four pages long. It was all words. There were no images. The first page was wall-to-wall advertisements. Ditto the fourth page. As for the two inside pages, the first half of the second page was also all ads. The rest of the second page was given over to parliamentary intelligence. The only page that was ad-free was the third page. So a total of almost 250 ads. All of them in the shape of what used to be called classified ads. Now I'll get to the news items, such as they were, in just a minute. But first, those ads, they bear looking at. They tell us a great deal about the London of June 25, 1817. Classifying them, so to speak, they fall into five rough categories. A lot of them were property ads. Houses and businesses that were for sale. Out of many, this one jumped out at me. Because it's in my neck of the woods, I live in West Hampstead. Our next-door neighbor to the west is an area called Kilburn. Today, it's thought of as being pretty central as London goes. I mean, after all, it's just north of Paddington and Maida Vale. Here's the ad. See if you can see what caught my eye. Kilburn. To be disposed of. The lease of a modern house, situate in the most pleasant part of Kilburn, consisting of two sitting rooms, four bedrooms, kitchen and back kitchen, coal and wine cellar, stable and chaise house, with hayloft and man's room over, also a cow house, dairy, pigsty, and outhouses, with a good garden of about half an acre. Well-stocked and completely enclosed. A good field of about four acres may be had with it. Well, it's that it's so rural, isn't it? It's not London. It's a farm. And that was just 200 years ago. But given that the house I live in in West Hampstead was built in the 1880s, well, I suppose a cow house and a dairy and a pigsty and a field of four acres in Kilburn 60 years before my house was built, maybe shouldn't be such a shocker. What else? Well, there were ads for furniture and libraries and books of sermons and wine 
and Grecian water. Magic stuff, Grecian water, if the ad is to be believed. Here's what it says. Hair, eyebrows, and whiskers changed from red or gray to brown or black by the Grecian water, which produces the desired effect by one application. It neither stains the skin or linen and is entirely free from that purple shade that renders the user the subject of ridicule. And then, lots of ads for positions. A footman wanted here, there a young lady of respectability who wishes to sink her time in a school in or near London. She will undertake to give instructions in English and the first rudiments of French, also to superintend the young lady's wardrobe and make herself generally useful. And then there were the institutional ads. The St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics, for example. Or one from Sydenham House Academy, addressed to parents and guardians. It reads, It has been for a long time a general complaint among parents and guardians that young men, who had been taught French at school for many years, were, however, when their situation in life required it, not only unable to converse in that language, but could not even understand it when spoken to. In order to remedy this defect, the principal of this seminary, a native of France, and a graduate in one of the French universities, during an establishment of more than twelve years, in the course of which he has fitted many young men for public offices and almost every respectable situation, informs parents whose sons are intended for commercial pursuits that by unremitting care and attention, he has been able to make his pupils speak French. My favorite, though, a parish contract ad published by St. Martin in the Fields. It reads, The church wardens and overseers of the poor of the above parish hereby give notice that they will receive proposals from such persons who may be desirous of contracting to supply their workhouse with the following articles for 12 months, viz. Good ox beef to consist of clods, stickings, and mouse buttocks. <laughs> yes, you heard right. And don't ask. I don't know, and I don't think I want to know. And the other big advertising categories, entertainments, the theater, and horses. To be sold, a handsome bay mare with capital actions, five years old, free from vice, and warranted sound, priced 30 guineas. How do you go wrong with a horse that's free from vice? But seriously, all those ads for horses, it was suddenly borne in upon me that 205 years ago, London was horse-powered. The railway was still a few years in the future, as was, incidentally, the horse-drawn omnibus. The underground was nearly half a century in the future. So, with one significant exception, which I'll get to in a minute, 
that left horse-drawn carriages or walking or riding. Horse-drawn carriages had been around since 1625. Brand new on the streets of London were hackney cabriolets. And how do you not fall in love with the way the history is compressed into the name? Hackney comes from the French word hackney for ambling horse. And cabriolet from the way the carriages were sprung. They bounced along. Again, the French supplied the word, cabriole. It means goat's leap. Bears repeating, the way they were sprung, they bounced along. May we, monsieur, put you in mind of a goat's leap. Is this one going to stick with you? I think it will. From here on out, you hail a cab. You're going to think of a goat bounding along. And then there were the out-of-town coaches to Southampton and Liverpool and Hastings and Brighton and Paris. They came under the delightful heading Paris Diligences and Dover Coaches. I said there was one exception. In the June 25, 1817 edition of the Times, there's an ad for the majestic Margate steam yacht. How do you resist this? The proprietors of this favorite vessel for the better accommodation of the visitors to Margate and desirous of doing away every idea of contending with another vessel beg leave to inform the public that in future the Majestic will leave the moorings off the tower every Tuesday and Friday for Margate and return from thence every Sunday and Wednesday at eight each morning. The Majestic is equal in speed to any steam vessel between London and Margate and requires only inspection to convince the public that she is the safest seaboat propelled by steam and far superior in accommodation to any other vessel. Again, this was brand new. Passenger steamboats had been introduced just two years previously, and they took off. By the mid-1850s, steamboat services carried several million passengers a year, and every day around 15,000 people traveled to work by steamboat. Today, apart from tourist cruises and the Uber boat, which is for commuters but just in central London, that's a lost London. London of yesteryear. People going to Margate today go by train or they drive. But if the ad's anything to go by, in 1817, a coach service, if it existed from London to Margate, was a poor second choice for that journey. Now those are the ads. As for the news, though it's a stretch to call it news, by our standards anyway, well, there was parliamentary news and law reports and city business and shipping news and a theater review and news just in from Windsor, Paris, and Gutenberg and a high-water notice at London Bridge. But it was mostly court and society carryings on how the Duke of Clarence was faring. He wasn't well. 
the Prince Regent dining with the Duke of Monrose at his house at Grosvenor Square. Births, marriages, and deaths of what today we'd call the 1%. And how about this? This is an announcement that's come from a body called the Board of Green Cloth. In the name and on behalf of His Majesty, by His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent's command, notice is hereby given that all carriages proceeding to Her Majesty's drawing room at the Queen's Palace on Thursday, the 26th of June, are to fall into line at the top of St. James's Street, go along Cleveland Row, and through the stable yard into the park, and set down with their horses' heads towards Buckingham Gate. After setting down, they are to wait in the birdcage walk, and on the parade opposite the horse guards. In taking up, they are to go along the road of the Mall, or the walk adjoining, and go out at Buckingham Gate, or the horse guards. No hackney coaches will be permitted to come into the park, but must set down at the outside of Buckingham Gate. The gate at the top of Constitution Hill will be open only for carriages belonging to persons having the own tray and servants attending the royal family, which are to set down at the great door of the palace in the courtyard and to wait at the bottom of the Constitution Hill. Reading something like that, you suddenly understand why the Prince Regent could snap his fingers and say, get the money, build the Brighton Pavilion, that's an order. Turns out, though, there was a news item that revealed a real fissure in that society. Habeas corpus had been suspended. It seems that unrest was afoot especially up north. The better sort, the officials, etc., in the Yorkshire town of Dewsbury, placed an ad in that issue of the Times. Dewsbury was a center of Luddite opposition to mechanization in which workers retaliated against the mill owners who installed textile machinery and smashed the machines which threatened their way of life. Just a few years in the future, Dewsbury would become a center of Chartist agitation, that huge working-class movement for political reform in Britain that lasted for 20 years and was fiercely opposed by the government. Here's the Dewsbury ad. This was a canary in the mineshaft. It made it clear that serious trouble was brewing. We, the clergy, ministers, church wardens, constable, other parochial officers, and principal inhabitants of the township of Dewsbury, do hereby declare that to the best of our knowledge and belief, there does not exist, nor ever has existed, any society of people in this our township who are or ever have been in the habit of meeting or assembling together for any political purpose whatever, save such as the Constitution and laws of the country warrant. 
nor have we any grounds to believe or suspect that there exists any conspiracy of any kind whatsoever in this populous township inimical to or subversive of its peace and good order and the general tranquility of the country at large. And moreover, that there have not been found in this township any individuals who have suffered themselves to be seduced to attend the meetings which have been promoted by those political missionaries or spies who have been recently detected and who, with intentions the most criminal and diabolical, have endeavored to inflame the minds of the lower classes to acts of treason and open rebellion. My goodness. Anyway, that's our report from the Times of June 25, 1817. The extraordinary thing is, apart from that Dewsbury notice, which must have looked to them like a fissure cracking open the foundations their world rested on, what's depicted here is a world of the 1%, or maybe 5%. The London bent double underneath the weight of the existence of the top 5%, and doing all the work that made their lives what they were. That London's not visible at all in that paper. The news from Dewsbury accepted. Together with that extremely sobering business of the suspension of habeas corpus, it would have been, but maybe every age is, an anxious, steady-as-she-goes time. Maybe even more so that morning, because a lot of the people reading the Times that morning, for them, the French Revolution would have been a living memory, the underclass rising up and turning on their betters, overthrowing them. The world turned upside down. Okay, let's goat leap out of the London of June 25th, 1817 and come down in the London of June 25th, 2022. Today's recommendation. These 10 days, it started on June 23rd, are Kensington and Chelsea Art Week. In the words of Vestalia Chilton, the director of the Art Week, we celebrate our return with yet another fantastic program of events hosted by venues and artists in our unique area of London. And as I, the London Walks Capo, say, you want to find out more about this seriously impressive KCAW Art Trail and its projects, high on over to www.kcaw.co.uk. But while you're at it, not forgetting our Chelsea Walk or our Kensington Walk or our Notting Hill and Portobello Market Walk, all of them a good fit with the KNC Art Week. You've been listening to the Today in London History podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company. London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just-the-right-size walking tour company. 
And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award winning walking tour company, indeed, London's only award winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished, distinguished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a blockbuster question. Do we want to make the most money, or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company in the world, you do whatever you have to do to attract and keep elite all-star guides. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason we've got a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished professionals. Barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, Guide of the Year award winners. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London walks. Good Londoning, one and all. See you tomorrow.